Welcome to Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. On this podcast, we journey through the devastating experience of the death of a child. Grief is seldom discussed openly in our culture, and the death of a child makes people feel even more uncomfortable. We approach the topic openly and honestly, speaking to people who have lost loved ones and experts who help care for them. Whether you are a parent experiencing loss or someone who wants to support another going through this tragedy, this podcast strives to offer hope and help. Welcome to episode 159 of Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. I'm Marcy Larson, Andy's mom. I love when I get to speak with people who are truly passionate. And today, Jenny, Sam's mom, is an extremely passionate woman. She contacted me a few weeks ago and comes from Australia. She noticed that, first of all, when her son Sam was diagnosed with cancer, people began to treat her differently. And then after Sam died, it continued. In fact, she almost feels like she's avoided at times. Initially, it made her almost want to just get out of society altogether, maybe leave Australia, move somewhere else where grief wasn't such a taboo subject. But then something changed for Jenny. And she began to have a fire within her, really, to work on changing society and changing how society feels about grieving parents, making it possible for us to live without having to feel almost ashamed for our feelings and our grief when we're around other people, because that's what can happen. You can start to feel like I better not talk about anything because it'll make them uncomfortable. And if I make them uncomfortable, then they won't want to spend time with me. These thoughts start going through your head, but really we need to change other people. So we don't need to be so scared to just be true, to be our true selves. So I really love talking to Jenny and I know you will too. And I'm excited to help her in this quest to help change society for the better. Thank you so much to my guest, Jenny, for coming on the Always Andy's Mom podcast today. Hello. How are you, Marcy? Oh, I am good. Thank you, Jenny. And Jenny comes to me from the other side of the world, so... We are meeting now when her daughter is at school and when my kids have just gone up to bed. So that we are really far apart in time, but it's exciting, exciting to get to know a friend from so far away. So coming from Australia today. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you again, like all the the beautiful people before me that have um, spoken to you. We, I can't appreciate the opportunity enough to speak and connect in people's heads by text or anything like that, but to actually get a discussion going. So thanks heaps for this. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, You wrote to me just a little while ago now, and I was just so excited by what you were doing. I just knew I had to have you on the show because you really are kind of taking grief head on, I would say, and trying to Mm -hmm. help change some attitudes among kind of society at large, really. Mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the whole thing is I want to turn the mirror on society and how they impact our grief. Everyone, each of our paths is so individual because it's the love between ourselves and our children and that I completely acknowledge. But every single day we are impacted by our own thoughts, by what other people say or do to us by our relationships with other people who don't understand. And that's the fundamental problem is that nobody understands. We've got a few fundamental problems. No one understands, which we get because you do have to actually go through this. Mm-hmm. But also too, there, there are, and I'm just going to call it because it's the world we live in now, people don't care enough. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit like tragedies. There's a, a scary sense to tragedies so long as they happen to someone else. Mm-hmm, 
Well, and I think too, that's why people want to stay a little bit more detached because they are afraid of the idea that, wow, if it could happen to you, it could happen to me. And I don't even want to think about the fact that it could happen to me. So let me just stay away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they can run, but they can't hide. I've decided. (laughs) (laughs) So I think, I think it's time that we stood in it because for our survival, we have got to have the courage of our convictions that there is no greater tragedy. So to survive each day, especially to survive it in such a discriminatory kind of society, is more mighty than absolutely anything on this earth. Mm-hmm. That's it, full stop. But unfortunately, because it's a tragedy, people assume somehow you've lost your IQ and they come racing at you with all sorts of advice. And and yet inside I was screaming, no, you're the one that actually needs the advice because I'm the one that's climbed the mountain. Mm-hmm. It's if, if someone climbs a mountain and they're up there in Everest and everyone's going, you know, whoa, what a hero and you're doing it. You don't have everyone then advising him how to get back down the mountain. Right, right. And yet with us. We are that person. Emotionally, we are that person. That the highest peak in the world, we are survivors. But that's not the way we're perceived. And we aren't held in the respect and honour that we deserve. And it starts with us. We have to stop going, God, people must think I'm crazy or people think I should be over it now. It's not for them to decide. Mm-hmm. It's for us to say how it is. Yeah. Yep. The way I see it is it's across all society and it starts with the doctors, it starts with the medical fraternity who have decided to, as we discussed a bit earlier, the the American Psychiatric Association, which is a bit the gold standard around the world, this year has decided to make a diagnosis, which also opens up the books for the pharmaceuticals, is is a grief disorder. And if I could just go with you, Marcy, just to go through the points of what they call you having a grief disorder. Uh And if I could just note that I tick every box and I will tick every box in perpetuum. Right. So Mm -hmm. these include identity disruption, such as a feeling as though a part of oneself has died, marked sense of disbelief about the death, avoidance of reminders that the person is dead, Intense emotional pain, such as anger, bitterness, sorrow related to the death. Difficulty with reintegration, such as problems engaging with friends, pursuing interests or planning the future. Emotional numbness, feeling that life is meaningless and intense loneliness. Yeah. Well, that's me. (laughs) And yet that is the fundamental, I guess, part of me now, to be honest. And the rest of me is a functioning person but right, to function, right. I, have, I have to have a numbness because if I felt what I was feeling deep down all the time, then I, I wouldn't be able to literally function for my daughter. Right. And so if they call that a disorder, this is the fundamental problem. Therefore, that gives permission for psychiatrists, psychologists, GPs across the world to see you you're still sad, you're still feeling those things a year after your child's death, you have a problem. And the fact that they're diagnosing this as a problem has got horrific ramifications for every grieving parent out there. I totally agree with you. I mean, I do think the other point to this, though, is that when you give it a disorder, in some ways you're now saying, well, people need help. And we do need help. Mm. We need Mm. a community around us to help us. So in that, that's okay. Because when people act like uh, just time will heal everything, just leave her alone, just give it some time, it'll be fine. No, I really need my therapist and I need to be able to talk and I need to be able to have my tribe around me to help me feel better and go through some healing. I mean, obviously I'm Mm. forever scarred, but Mm. I can improve, right? So Mm. in that, I think the idea was okay, but this whole, the time frame thing is not okay. I mean, Mm. I've talked with a lot of people, a lot of times you're stuck and you don't even start grieving until you're Mm. at your point. 
Like they mm. make the thing that you're supposed to be done at a year. Well, for me, I don't mm. feel like I was able to start grieving until close to a year because we still had all of the court stuff with the woman who hit us. That ended 10 and a half months after the accident. I needed that to be done before I could even start to try to grieve, really, mm. because I was stuck until then. And a lot of people mm. are stuck for various reasons for mm. a long period of time before they can really start actively grieving right? Mm, mm. So that I hate. I hate that. And then of course, the whole idea that then they're going to put, do medications and things like that, I think is also mm. bad. Mm. Right. I think it's, it's about educating again, how someone sits down in front of you, and they say they are really struggling with their grief, they are really struggling to function to 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 get there. It's about educating. Yeah, the, the GPs, and, and knowing that basically, you know what, people don't, people ha already have it in them. They already know, but they need someone to believe in them. They, they simply need that someone to say, you know what, I got your back. Yeah. I got your back because you've got this. This is the love you have for your child. And that's what my GP said. And he was the GP that I used to work with. And he said, Jen, he said, I knew you before. He said, I know the love that you have for your son. And he said, it's my turn to look after you now. And I have got you. Everything that you say, everything that you feel is so valid. Mm -hmm. And I'm in honor of you. And I have got you. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, Andy died in August. By October, you know, all my friends are like, you've got to go to your doctor. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not sleeping. I would, all this normal stuff. Normal. Yeah. Everything's yeah. normal. But I have everyone telling me, you need to go see your doctor because yeah. they need to do something because clearly I'm broken and I need to be fixed. And I love the fact that I went to my doctor and she said, you're grieving. It's normal. Yeah, that's it. I could give you a pill, but it doesn't matter. It's not going to change what you're going through. Yeah. This is normal grief. Mm. And I think it helped because her nurse that she has was a grieving mom, actually. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing. I've, I really feel for the people that go to their doctors and come away feeling a million times, if it's possible, worse. And there are them out there. And I think it's it's we've got to be part of the education, not some association who I'm yeah. sure they have the director has not lost their child. Right. It's too much. I wish for I've, I've wished so long for like a feeling simulator for them just to walk through like a simulator, even just for one minute, just to feel it, because it's the 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 feeling of it that we try so hard to articulate. And we always fall short because there are no words. And sometimes it's best to left there. It's the feeling. It's like I did a slideshow for a charity here and it was the music. And as someone said, you gave the music meaning with what you were saying, which was how to deal with, I hate to use the word, terminally, terminally ill child mm -hmm. in their approach because, you know, you could go down million labyrinths here, but this is where I had other issues where people were wanting me to understand he was going to die. And yeah. the, as far as I'm concerned, we were fighting for his life and he was fighting for his life every second. And he didn't lose his battle because it wasn't a battle to be had suggesting that you didn't try hard enough or yep. whatever. Mm -hmm. There was no battle. It was he lived his life with this. And he was the same person as he he approached that the way he would anything else. And he really wanted people to see him. You know, one that you're getting a diagnosis and the next minute there's a mad clown coming in the hospital and it's like some kind of traumatic pantomime. You're just thinking what? And then you're getting all these organisations. And I just turned my back on everything. These, You know, I guess it's because you don't want it to belong to you, good or bad. Right. Right. You know, we can come and make his last wishes come true. Out of Don't you talk about last wishes with me. We just want our life back. That's the holy grail. Don't yeah. try and distract us with everything that means nothing to us, you know. So anyway. You know, I, I actually want to take a step back because what I yeah. like to do is have you talk about Sam. 
because yeah, I, yeah. I want to have you talk about him yeah. as a kid and just to get to know him a little bit. So I think this would be a good time to do that. Yeah. Well, he's, you know, he's the love of my life. We had him when I was 38. So it was, he, I guess, is really my inner flame. Everything yeah. about him, we got each other on every level, if you know what I mean, our whole approach to life. He was a big picture kind of boy. He, You couldn't upset him in terms of something going wrong. Okay. He never actually whinged about anything. Even with his brain tumor, he went camping with his father. You know, the massive storm, these tropical storms that we have up here. One night, the, the gum tree next to them fell down. The tent fell down. The, they were flooded out. He came, they came back and I got woken up and midnight going, Mom, it was amazing. You know, everything <laughs> is fantastic, you know. And, and that's the thing. People talk about living in the moment and appreciating the moment. He was already that. That was the core of him. He didn't need that's to be awesome. told reminded that, you know, there was no sparrow that could have a little bath in the puddle without him noticing. That's, yeah. it's just like, oh, joy, joy, joy. And that's the joy that just vibrated from him. And that's what our whole family was just enveloped in with him. It's mm -hmm. like Sam's home. It's hi, everyone. And even when India was, I had to, while well, he had his tumour and India was having stomach pains, it turned out to be anxiety with everything that had changed in the life. We were in the A&E and one of the nurses had told the doctors about our situation and she came behind the curtain and, you know, was saying we're very, very sorry. And then next minute Sam's whipping the curtain and I'm going, India, what are you doing in here and everything? She said, is that the son with the brain tumour? Like, it's like, <laughs> it's just, it's just no one. It's like he didn't get the memo and he didn't right, want anyone right. else to focus on it. It's just like take his lead. But it was, and, and, that's, and that's, I guess, why we eventually put ourselves in our own bubble because everyone was so attached to the tragedy. Yeah. And I couldn't, when you're with your son all the time, you are hoping people are reading the situation and reading your eyes and everything, but they don't. So to protect him, to protect me, we made our own beautiful bubble. The joy in that, that we had. And as he said, he said, mum, there was only one day I remember and it was 24-7, he had an anaplastic astrocytoma mm -hmm. and diagnosed when he was nine. And there was only one time I remember crying in front of him and it was after we'd gone to a movie theatre and it was after his radiation, he couldn't lift his head and this lady wanted to sit with her children but I had Sam lying across two seats and she threw a drink at him. And the oh. ice, everything all over him. Oh, my. And I remember coming back from that so sh shaken, so I could have just drunk a cup of tea with the both of us and gone right then and there. This, yeah. this world is so ugly. I can't bear it anymore. And Sam said, but, Mum, we've got each other. Yeah. And I said, exactly, exactly. All right, let's get the dog. Let's go down by the river. But that kind of thing happened on various levels, almost daily. Yeah. That response from people or the avoidance or all of that. Yeah. You're really kind of in a no-win situation in, in that because... In absolutely. Because in that woman obviously thought that you were rude and thought that your yeah. kid was just lazy and whatever. Um, I did explain to her he had a brain tumor. Oh, you did. You did. Mm -hmm. Well... And that's crazy that she still didn't care. Yeah. And she, I would yeah. think then she would have then yeah. treated you in a weird way to the other way. She just ran off with that. her, exactly ran off with the kids. The manager came in and, and this was the whole thing. It's just like, we just couldn't cope with the whole drama, you know? Right. And, and it's the most horrific nightmare because also to his intracranial pressure was something I had to watch all the time. So you're there trying to go, yeah, isn't life great? But inside you're just terrified, terrified the whole time if he fell, if he, if right. anything compromised him. And then India comes home and it's the whole thing of having, having the whole family affected. He was lying there and he couldn't move and he could hear India on the tramp going, mom, mom, come and see, 
come and see, you know, my jump. Or, or, and yeah. then that was the only time and I saw the tears roll. And he, this was when he couldn't see and the tears were just rolling down his yeah. cheek. He just wanted to go down and jump with India. So it was another cruel aspect. Here she is. Here, look, Sam, look what you could be doing. Remember what we used to do. You know, not that she was saying that, but all of that's there. So my whole family just being ripped apart over such a long period of time, and yet I'm grateful for every second of that. Yeah. But it is hard, and it's hard to be that family you know I, I mean yeah I, oh god I lost Andy obviously suddenly in a car accident but when I was in high school my mother was dying of cancer and my, both of my parents had cancer when I was in high school actually so they they both went through treatments chemo radiation everything when I was in high school and then my mom eventually died when I was in college but I was always the kid whose parents had cancer yes right you were defined by this. I was always that. Like, it was always one of yeah. those people. And I so, so didn't want my kids to be that. Yeah. Like, because yeah. that was me. That was my label. As the exactly. kids parents had cancer. And I thought, I don't want my kids to have a label. And then Andy died. Yeah. And now they're the kids whose brother died. Exactly. And the thing is, you grow up with families like that. You grow up with, and when you think of it happening to another family, I do remember they were the poor, tragic family. Right. And you think, no, no, I don't want to be seen as that. People will see you the way they see you. And there's not a lot, I know. you know, we can't change what they do, but we can change how we project ourselves, I guess. Yeah. And Sam, like I say, he loved he simply loved life. You know, if Sam loved you, he loved you 100%. Mm-hmm. Hard on sleeve, just he, he's just vibrating with joy. Yeah. He was very intelligent and he was very soulful and he was very good at reading people, which showed he had so much empathy. Mm-hmm. And his loyalty to me was something I have never experienced before he came along. And... I guess I want to, in terms of we we think of how we live our life to honour him, truth. He was about truth, was the core of who he is. He would go, Mum, why are they saying it like that? Because it's like this, you know what I mean? And I go, yeah, "Yeah." we're so used to editing ourselves for whatever reason, for what that people believe will expose their vulnerability, what other people think of us, or we want to fit the narrative, or for whatever reason. And for him now, I live truth Mm -hmm. and that is exactly what I'd love to reach out to everyone today is we've got the power to empower ourselves in how we are perceived and unfortunately it's like being patted on the head you poor kind of grieving mother or and like I said that there are the people in this world who do care and don't know what to do And then they're the ones who genuinely don't care. Well, the ones who genuinely don't care and are that self-absorbed and superficial, we have to leave to one side. But we have (laughs) to know that they're, uh, you know, they are a lost cause. Forget about it. They are a lost lost cause, you know. And we, you get quick at identifying those people. And you know in your heart who they are. And often it's the person at the bus stop that is actually in the good group, you know, and not someone who's closest to you. So it, it does mess with your whole the way everything was in your life. So you have to remain really open-minded. What I want to do is I want to create an organisation of grieving parents, not as a grief group for ourselves as such, but to educate. Because where there is misunderstanding, there is huge opportunity to educate. And that's how we have to approach it. It's like, you must want to support us. So we're going to give you the best tools on how we must be supported. And and the wiseness that you can learn from us. When you endure a tragedy like this, it's like you almost like you're taken to the end of your life. It's like you're that 80-year-old Buddhist on the top of the mountain. It's like there's so much you get now that is fundamentally a core of you that you can only achieve if you go through this tragedy. And that's what makes our knowledge and our wiseness absolute gold because you can only acquire it this way, this tragic way. And there is so much that can be gained from what we can give the world rather than being put in the tragic corner. And I'm 
shocked, honestly, by the number of people who will write in who are not actually bereaved parents, but their best friend lost their child, or maybe yeah. they're a grandparent, or they're an aunt, or they're somebody, and mm. they have no clue what to do. Exactly. So they find the podcast. And they start listening to try to get a little bit of help. And I mean, I really admire those people. That's amazing. Yeah. And a lot of times they'll say, I've tried to get my sister, I've tried to get my friend to listen and they won't listen because it's too painful and they won't listen. Yeah. Um, and I hope that they do eventually because I do think it can be healing. But I'm glad that it can be helpful for people on the outside who aren't experiencing just to get a window in. Absolutely. It, it almost needs a bit like, and this is probably a poor analogy, but Alcoholics Anonymous has Al-Anon or something like, you know, right. the group there that is for the family of the alcoholic. Right. So right. you need someone like, it's, it's a bit like we're in the trauma and we're in trauma for such a long period. Well, you know, it's always like a buzzing in the background, the trauma. But in that time, we were so busy trying to save his life. We couldn't deal with the fact that other people couldn't deal with us in our stress and our grief. We couldn't be educating them at the same time as trying to save our son's life and save ourselves. Right. And this is where an organisation of where it's not a psychologist, it's not a psychiatrist, it's mm -hmm. the voices and the very sane, intelligent voices of grieving parents. Right, right. And the very valid, genuine voices that talk about everything to the detail. And I think a lot of family come from the point of, but we mean well, we meant well, and she can't see that. But it's like parents who feed bread to the ducks with their kids, they mean well, but it's bad for the ducks. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? We've got, we've got to see, it's not that we don't think they mean well, but everyone's just like firing shots and just missing the target completely and just causing so much pain in the process. What I do love is when someone acknowledges that. Like yeah. I recently had somebody that said something and then she said, I don't know if that was the right thing to say. You know, I just don't know what to say. Yeah. But I thought I would say something. And what was nice about her acknowledging that is that she was then open for me to say, you know, it wasn't quite the right thing to say. Absolutely. And this would have been better. So I gave her what would have been a better thing to say. And she really, really appreciated the fact that I kind of corrected her, but totally appreciated where she was coming from, appreciated the, the, what she was trying to do, but kind of tweaked it a little bit to a way that would help. And hopefully if she's in this situation again, she will remember that and, you know, use different words, right? Exactly. Well, it's that voice into an organization because we are more valid in numbers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's well, we and are. if you had an organization and that was big enough and and well known enough, yeah, then maybe people would go to that in time of crisis. That'd be exactly. like, what did those people say? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you, because right? I find the exactly I find the ones that say they do that kind of thing again miss the mark because it's not run by grieving parents. Grieving parents run grief groups, but this is about. Like I say, we what we know about mental health now, bringing it out of the darkness and into the community is something that I want to do with parental grief. So we're not left going to the shopping centre, having people avoid us. Because they do. <laughs> they and they do. do. It's, it's honestly, it's extraordinary and we've all had it. And it's like, God, our peripheral vision is so good. And it's like, God, don't you think I know you're, you know what I mean? You know, what's really funny is I just had this revelation yesterday. I was thinking about my patient panel that I see at the office because I, I left pediatrics. I left practice for a full year. And a lot of my patients then found other doctors in the office. And I would say the majority of them, when I came back, came back to me and I became their pediatrician again. But several didn't. And it just hit me yesterday, which I don't know why it would take me three years to have this realization, but I thought wow, some of them probably never came back to me because they don't want to look at me in that same way again. And they're always mm -hmm. going to be thinking about me being a grieving mom. Yeah. 
And I'm not, I can't be Dr. Larson to them anymore because mm. I'm going to be grieving mom, Dr. Larson. And that's just uncomfortable because I'm taking my kids to see you. Mm. I never mm. hit me until yesterday. And I thought, I wonder how mm. many of those are, that's the reason is they just didn't want to do that. Cause I know there are people that are very, very uncomfortable with grief. Mm. It hadn't hit me in that kind of personal way until mm. just yesterday. And it's, and it's shocking, isn't it? Like when you think of it and you think, on what, what you, and you wouldn't be asking them to do anything. No, you know, no. It's, it's just the fact that it's, again, it's all in their head. And right. this is the whole thing. And maybe discrimination's a strong word, but when you are avoided because of your color, that's, you're racist you know what I mean like if but being avoided in the supermarket has that same feeling it's like I'm a good person here right I had a really bad thing happen but that doesn't mean I'm contagious you know I I didn't commit a crime being a bereaved mom is not contagious (laughs) exactly and it's like I'm a good person and I'm mighty for my survival yet it's like cooey right like, where is everyone? And it's how to get rid of a crowd quickly. And um, <laughs> you can get rid of a crowd quickly, can't you? <laughs> and <laughs> it is eventually, it just chips away at you. And like you say, on a good day, you can deflect it. You can be like the Wonder Woman thing and just kind of deflect it off. And then there are other days you absorb it so much, you, you're you on the floor in pain, yeah. you know? And I think... That's we see mothers who are out there starting foundations and doing this. And also, too, that can be a flip side to that. People compare you to that person. You know, why don't you go out and, you know, start a foundation or do this? And I said, you know, that person is also on the floor crying and trying to breathe other days. Don't think that there is just one corner. That's it. Yep. This is the new path I'm on because it's like a tide. It comes up, you get pulled back, you go up, you get pulled back. I I have lots of days like that where just horrible. Yeah. And the whole month of August has been was that for me, right? Exactly. That's the anniversary month, and I was like a mess. But yet everybody thinks because I have this podcast that I'm yes. like all together. Exactly. You know? I created this organization. I do this podcast every week. Like you must, you're way stronger than me. And nope, I'm really not. I'm really not. It's it's a bit like mothers and mothers groups when you have babies. Oh, you know, you're amazing. Your baby's all dressed so beautifully and your house is so immaculate and whatever, you know, like (laughs) it's, it's the same. We've got to be very careful in how we support each other. We've got to stop holding lofty high where you're stronger. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it made me feel worse. So there's nothing brave about it. There's nothing, mm-hmm. you know, because like I say, if it made if it made me feel worse, I, there's no way I'd be talking to you. So yeah. I'm also yeah. doing it for me. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that we keep it real and that we keep our voices as front not a psychologist not as a a grief counselor and not as we control the narrative of how the world perceives us and deals with us because that way it loses its power because this way they live in fear the public the family the friends who've let you down and they feel justified they do feel justified because they say we tried everything she doesn't realize how well we we meant well, but in our grief, we've got to continually understand how they feel. No, it's got to come the other way around now because this point about the APA reintegrating back into society, there is a black hole mm-hmm. of lack of knowledge in society about how to welcome us back. Yes, yes. About how do we reintegrate back? It's a two-way street. We can't reintegrate back at the moment, because it's like living back in the days of witches being burnt at stakes and everything. Absolutely no one wants to deal with this. Some people try their hardest and eventually people leave you either suddenly or a painful regression when also too as a friend, I can't give back the way that people have got to readjust their expectations of you. I didn't remember little Johnny's birthday and I know how much you remembered India's birthday and I'm sorry about that, but also too, don't count that I'm not going to forget it next year either. Like it's nothing personal. This is me now. Yeah. I wish it were different, but this is, I guess, 
the symptoms of a grieving mother. This is the characteristics of a grieving mother. Because when you're in survival mode a lot, your mind is all about, wow, I got through this whole day. The family's intact. I made some degree of sense to people. I have achieved this in work. I feel emotionally intact. That's such a huge achievement every day. People see you and they don't realize how it's just like walking through wet cement. Yeah. And I use the analogy of if you were told you couldn't walk again, if you were in a wheelchair, people aren't saying in five years' time, well, come on, you know, look, be positive and start looking to the future and get, you know, that'll get you up and walking again. Right. Our heart is broken. It's broken. So it doesn't mean we can't live a meaningful life. It doesn't mean that we can't function. It doesn't mean that we can't do more, if anything, we've got even more to contribute to society now. Right. And that's what the lesson that society needs to learn. We need to stand in that courage of conviction and say, our heart is broken. You can't see it. But like a paraplegic can't walk again, I can't be that person again. Right. I'm not going to be the same. I'm not. It, it's not going to. It's not. So I'm getting to know myself mm-hmm. in the process of you getting to know me too. Right. And I'm not the same as I used to be, and I'm not going to be. No. And if you put yourself under that pressure, it's only you who's going to suffer and your children and your family that are going to suffer. You have to cut yourself some slack at the same time as others have got to adjust their expectations. So this is where I say it's a two-way street. If we had the understanding of people, like, and I feel like it's all impossible until it's done. Mm -hmm. And like I say, apathy we are as responsible for what we don't do as to what we do do. So if this is a problem, if we feel people who misunderstand us is a problem, if it impacts our relationships with people, then we have to do something about it. And it's not going to happen until grieving parents take control, unite Mm -hmm. and do something about it. Well, and you've talked about how friendships and friends, people end up falling away, right? Yeah, yeah people that you thought wouldn't. I mean, I can think of people in my life that I never thought would kind of fall away. Exactly. The other piece really, and I I think you touched on this a little bit even before we started recording, is family. Because your family can't really totally fall away because they're your family and they're still your Mm. family. But, you know, when you are not the same person, there are certain family members that don't really handle that well. They don't. They absolutely don't. And relationships are just not the same. I really only have a handful of my family members that I still communicate with on a regular basis. The, in a in an in a really a meaningful way. In a, right, in a meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, in, in a meaningful way. way. Not not right. in a you know, you've ticked that box. Right. I tick the boxes on several people. Yeah. But it's but it's the meaningfulness. There are only a few that I feel like I can really talk to about my grief and my real feelings and what's going and on. And that's a me. lot. The other <laughs> ones, I just have to keep it so superficial because yeah. they're, they don't want to go there and yeah. I don't want to go there with them because I'll just be mad then. <laughs> and they see so, and they see you as still being there as your fault and your problem. Right. And I think, I, I think about my own dad this way, because like, I know that he talks about every, uh, me to every yeah. other member of my family on how like bad I'm doing and screwed up I am. But yeah. I can't talk to him about it because he thinks I shouldn't be thinking about it. Yeah. You know? I had the, uh, I know, I had the same, my, my father only recently passed, he's a doctor. And he, he's a bit, you know, I guess, it hurt. It hurt so much. He was the doctor of the old school. Like if you wanted to die at home, he'd set his alarm every two hours to make sure he went over. And you know, get, he was mm-hmm. saw four generations of family. He spent a year in Antarctica on the Australian base down there. Spent a year as a flying doctor. He was he was for the people. And when he rang me just after, no, I rang him for Father's Day, but I instinctively kept him at a distance because I knew. You know, I was seen as the sentimental one of the family. The, you know, come on, come on, everybody. You know, big wig, the guinea pig has died. We've got to have a funeral. You know, you know, yeah. and everyone be like, oh god, another guinea pig's died. Now we've got to have. You know, Jenny wants us all to 
cry over the, the guinea pig, you know, and it's not that, you know, but I could see that old stuff coming back. I could still that, see that, oh, Jenny's going to go under. If we, if we give her one inch, if, if yeah. we let her, she's going to go right under. And it's that whole lack of belief in me, that whole undermining the love that I have for my son and who I am to have even got this far. I needed dad to believe in me. I needed him to say, like what my GP said, I've got you. Yeah. We And I needed my dad to let me be sad. Exactly. And every time I talked to him on the phone, he would try to cheer me up. And like, yep. I need you to let me be sad. Exactly. Right? That's what I needed. And I just exactly. can't get it. And I know I can't get it. <laughs> I yeah. wish I could. And maybe yeah. I need to help teach him. Maybe I need to take a lesson from you to try to try to do that. Well, well, the thing is what I had to do is I told my dad, I love you so much, but I can't see you because it's my self-preservation. This is what I, I told him clearly what I needed first, though. This is what I need from you. Yeah. And I feel like I had to have a good report card every time I spoke to him. Yeah, yeah. things are better. Yeah, let's talk about everything else but Sam, okay? You know, he, that's what he could deal with. And that's right. And I could tell I've got nine brothers and sisters. And I could tell that whole conversation and I was accidentally CC'd in on an email going, oh, she's not as bad as we thought. She's actually coping and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And it's like, oh, okay, you know, and there in some ways I thought, okay, I've got to understand this because if I see India, my daughter, upset, I panic straight away inside. Right. And I think that must be what he's feeling. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I'll cut him some slack. But it has to be both ways. You can't just keep the conversation about the weather and about this and about that because inside you come away screaming. That's my conversation with my dad every time. Yeah. We only talk about the weather <laughs> and really superficial stuff. And it's not at all satisfying. But <laughs> we, that's what we talk about. <laughs> that's what I've got. That's all you've got. That's all he's got. That's all he's going to give you. And one thing, you know, sometimes Bob at the Barbie says it best, you know, Steve's a man, my husband, a few words, but he said, Jenny, you've got to stop looking in your family what they will never give you. And my immediate reaction to that being the eternal optimist is, no, but they will. They've uh, just got to know this. They've just got to know I that. just turn to different people. I, ha I have my dear yeah. Anthony who listens to every episode. She's wonderful. I have my cousin, Teresa. I have my sister-in-law, my brother to an extent. But, you know, the, those people I know have me still. And yeah. the rest of them, I just know don't. So. Yeah. And, that's, and the thing is that, that, again, affects you different days differently. There are some days where you go, that's my life now. I accept that. And other days where the injustice of that, yeah. that what have you done wrong? Not to, not to get the support you deserve. You know what I mean? It really rips you up. And this is where if we had an organisation, then there's a validity to that right, as opposed right. to our own squeaking voices in our own corner of that the world. That it's just not me that's messed up, right? Yeah, exactly. We all messed up. No, no, no. <laughs> we're all you know up, what right. I mean? Like we've, if you just listen to us, there is so much can be gained from us. And this is the whole thing about empowering. Let's own our wisdom. We have suffered for this and we will right. continue to suffer for this. But that doesn't mean that you know, we are the bottom of the barrel or that we must be maligned in society or you poor tragic people. It's like, let's push back against all those labels and feel the power within us grow and the desire to live grow. Mm -hmm. Because when you get beaten down and feel like you've got to apologise for your state of being or say, I know I should be over it or whatever, mm -hmm. you're playing into that narrative. Yeah. And we've got, we, we are our own worst enemy like that because they just keep staring at us and eventually you start speaking like they do. And then you come home going, why didn't I stand up for myself? So a couple of weeks ago, I, I had my golf league and it was the day after the anniversary of Andy's death. And uh, the, one of the women I was golfing with was the woman I golfed with the day before Andy died. And it just happened to be, I was golfing with the same person and it really got me like, and I was still just drained and emotional and whatever. And we got towards the end of the round of golf and I just started crying. 
I mean, I was just crying. I couldn't handle it anymore. I'm walking off and this other woman who I don't really know that well, I sort of recognize I've had some pleasantries with her. And she said, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And I said, yesterday was the anniversary of my son's death. And then she, oh, I'm so sorry. And then the woman next to her, oh, I'm so sorry. And I started thinking to myself, Oh, they probably think it was one year ago and it's been four. I bet they would judge me if they knew yes, it was Yes, exactly, Marcy. And, and I thought, mm. oh, I shouldn't think that. But I but yeah. I really, I didn't want them to ask. Because I thought if I have to say it's been four years mm-hmm. and I'm a weeping puddle on the golf mm-hmm. course four years mm-hmm. later, then mm. they're going to look at me in a really weird way. If they think it's a year... They might think it's okay, but like four would definitely be outside the window of being okay. But that right? right there, Marcy, that right there is the reason we need this. Because right. the thing is, everyone approach now, it's them. It's their thing. Okay, everything is measured in time, in that linear time. Mm-hmm. Now, I when you love your children, the people, the children who are physically here, I don't expect that parent for that to wane over time or or measure it in time or measure it in any way. And that's why I say grief is love. Yeah. It's we play the game of life and we do it. And that's the amazing thing about us. But immediately people try and measure it by time and in their own heads. And this is probably the most critical point And this is where I say on my website, so we can grieve without pushback. So we, you can be there and not feel the need to justify, to explain or to zip up. Or to keep that information back. Keep it in in you. Right now, I was keeping that back. And in general, I feel like I keep that information back. Like if people ask me, I will say that my son died, but I am getting to the point where I really don't want to say it's been four years because I feel like they'll judge me. Absolutely. And I completely get that. And that is exactly why we need to do this. Yeah. We need to unite to get an organization to say, you know what? This is how it is. Because my voice in my corner of the world is one single voice. Mm -hmm. And so people discount single voices. It's the uniting of something that gives it the credibility and the validity that we deserve. Well, and I love how you talked about it being love. And I... It is love. My therapist had told me that way early in my grief. She said, grief is love with nowhere to go. Your love is. is what keeps you close to your son. Exactly. That is what it is. So my love for all of my children will continue until the day that I die. And you should not have to defend that. And right now, I do not have anywhere, any physical person for my love for Andy to go to. Yes. So that is my grief. That is my exactly. grief. Right mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And we get that. Yeah. We get that. But this is where I'm saying we need to turn the mirror back on society. And this is where I say the opportunity is there's a black hole. We shouldn't have to be, our lives shouldn't be left to be so difficult that we are defending ourselves all the time. Mm -hmm. It's like we've committed a crime and we've got to explain ourselves. And even so many times you explain yourself and it just falls flat, doesn't it? You walk away thinking they haven't taken, they haven't absorbed that and I haven't explained it properly. And then you're hard on yourself again. And it just is this cycle. And she's not handling it well because it's been four years. Yeah. Because you're at four years too, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. I thought it was January 2018. And not long after that, India used to, she was eight. Yeah. Sam was literally her world. And even as a child, you expect your parents, but not your big brother. Yeah. And siblings are left. Because how old was he then? He's 12, Sam is 12. Okay, that's what I thought. Mm -hmm. And India's eight and she was eight. And this is, again, siblings are left out of, again, these they need to be part of this organisation big time because they they can't articulate it and they don't want the focus on them. Mm -hmm. They are so scared. But the thing is they are probably more exposed than we are to what people will say to them. Yes. And I'm sure I don't even know the half of it despite being on it, you know. So the first time after Sam passed, India was waiting for her regular Saturday play date on the front deck. We've got an old Queenslander and we live in Queensland and we're waiting for her to come up the road. She had had the same play date every Saturday for a year and never came again. Really? The phone, the family, never heard from them again. 
they were looking back, like they're a very social climbing family. It's like, this isn't part of our, you know, but explain that to India then. So she has had the abandonment of people, the abandonment of family that abandon you when they, when you have a tragedy. Well, and, and I'm sure those parents were thinking, I don't want my daughter to be sad. Yeah, that's exactly right. Send her, she's in India is just going to be sad, which is exactly not the, totally the case, right? I mean, kids grieve and they have times to grieve and then they go out and play. I mean, the day after Andy died, his cousins came over and they were out in the neighborhood riding their bikes. Yeah. They weren't just yeah. sitting in the house crying. Yeah. I mean, they had times when they were crying, but they also went out and rode their bikes. Essentially, kids need the light. Yeah. You know, we all need the light, but they need the light. And I didn't. And you can't give it to them. Exactly. Oh, you know, and this is the thing. That's what was in this woman's head, this mother's head. And this is the whole thing. It's not just a one-off. These things get repeated at varying levels, at varying times of our lives all the time. And I just want to have an organisation there to say, you know what, go there and this is how it is, rather than me trying to explain it to you because all you're thinking of is how you're going to get out of the situation. You know what I mean? And and just think that play date, what that... That would have been so amazing for her to oh, have that break. She was in her little fairy dress. She had all she'd done all these things for the fairy garden that she was hoping to make with her friend. And I'm thinking, what was the mother thinking was going to happen? I mean, this is what I talk about discrimination. This is what I talk about. You can't, you can't diminish what that does to a child, to a sibling, and and turn her world even more. I actually took her out of school for a year and homeschooled India. And that was the best thing I ever did. And she's right. back now at another school. She's got a group of friends. You know, she's doing straight A's. But more than anything, she believes in herself. And that's the whole thing. If you've got your self-worth, the world is your oyster. Everything else, I, just, I took a, a homeschool because I thought edgic this is before COVID. All that can just catch itself up. I need to, we need to soothe we need to stop right. the hemorrhage. Right. And she would have been just labeled. Oh. Like as my kids are labeled. My exactly. kids are definitely labeled. Especially my daughter, for sure. She wasn't the one whose brother died. Like oh, it's so wrong. You know what's funny is a few months, well, maybe it may have even been close to a year after Andy died, we were at a gym, like doing a workout and there was the trainer that I was with <clears throat> said, oh, that kid over there, he's from your daughter's school. And he called over to him and said, oh, do you know Catherine Larson? And his response back was, oh, is she the one whose brother? And then he cut him off. But I was like, shoot, yeah. that, is, that is all she's known for. Like yeah. that, it was just awful right awful and he cut her off cut him off because she was right there you know Mm. which he didn't realize Mm. she was right there but it Mm. was like that's not what you want and that's what she would have had which is good that you just pulled her out Mm. and this is what we should stand up for we've we've got to say this isn't just because this happens everywhere doesn't make it okay because we are suffering enough have we've got enough to deal with for the rest of our lives, to deal with the society and how society treats us is is not on. And we have to stand in that. I actually went to Asia because I was so disillusioned six months after Sam. Um, I'd never been, I'd never been to Bali. I thought it's going to be too touristy, but that's all we've got at the moment. You know, with India, I don't want to culture shock her too much. And But what I was scouting for was to live somewhere else because I thought I'm done with the Western society and how they deal with this, you know, and being labelled like this um, and feeling I have to be more than what I am so they don't view us like this. And so we went over there and I was trying to decrease her trauma, thinking maybe if we just live in a village somewhere, the way I used to remember going through Asia and India was, you know, you couldn't go between one palm tree and the next and everyone's like, hello, madam, and running and giving you a hug and everything. It's different now because everyone's on their phones. 
So, yeah. but we went over there and the second night we were there, there was an earthquake. It was seven on the Richter scale in Lombok. Oh, wow. And we, the 500 died that night and we were caught in the middle of it. And there was this, I'd never been in an earthquake before. And I had India, it was all like in slow motion, but, but, but at the same time as trying to save India, I also felt, of course, we can't yeah. live one more day without Sam. Of course, this makes so much sense. So all these things are going through your mind. But I was like, we had the scaffolding that was coming down. So in India was in the middle. So I pulled her over and we fell on the ground, fell on the beach. And then it was like a turtle on the beach. I had her and I was flat on the sand trying to move out from under the, the scaffold. And we ran back to the villa and the second one happened and it was just, you know, that I knew what it was, was an earthquake from the start. So it seemed to go for longer. And then um, the tsunami warning came. Yeah. And we, I put India in my arms. We raced out. The car horns were just beeping everywhere. It was just a standstill. We didn't, there was nowhere to go. So we raced back to the villa. And then um, I said to Steve, this is it. We have to accept this is it now. And, but of course, men being men, they want to know the pitch of the roof's like this and they don't make them any higher than palm trees there anyway because of the earthquakes. He goes, no, we've got to get into you up on the roof. And I said, it doesn't matter whether we get on the reef, the tsunami is going to be bigger than that. And he goes, you know, you're not thinking straight. We've got to save India. And I just closed the door. I said, Steve, just leave us. And we went to sleep. And then three hours later, the tsunami law warning lifted. He woke me up and said, you know, and then we went into emergency accommodation after that. But that's how desperate I was. And unfortunately, I've traumatised it with an, an earthquake on top of everything. But <laughs> even like that's a more tangible, that was nothing in comparison. You know what I mean? Right. right. But that's how desperate I was to look for warmth and understanding that I was yeah. or I couldn't get from my own society. So that's why I'd love to create this organisation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I've got so, Maverick Grief is the website. Well, I was just going to have you say the website. Yeah. What's the website again? It's Maverick Grief and it's after Sam loved Top Gun. Um, I fast forwarded, you know, the, the parts that weren't, you know, child friendly. Um, yeah. But he loved Top Gun for years and he wanted to be a pilot. And so I called oh. it Ma- and he lived a Maverick adventurous life. So and he lived truth. So all of that is reflected in the website. Um there's no editing. There's basically a call for grieving parents, a call that I can be there to to not support you because you've got everything yourself, but to have some camaraderie. Right. But for us to unite together mm-hmm. to say we need to talk about this with the world. So our daily lives are in honour of our sons, honour of our children and of ourselves, and that we have done something to push back on this on society's lack of education about grieving parents and siblings. Well, I just love what you're doing. I'm super excited by it. Uh, And I wish you all of the luck or whatever (laughs) that you have and hope that a lot of people contact you. So thank you again for being on. I'm looking forward to seeing more. Yeah, thanks, Heath, Marcy. I look forward to staying in contact. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful or would like to support the podcast, please leave a five-star rating and comment. To help financially, you can text Andy's Mom to the number 53555 or visit the donate page on andysmom.com. Your donations are secure and tax-deductible, and we are now able to accept Venmo, PayPal, and Apple Pay. Always Andy's Mom is a registered 501c3 organization and can receive donations through smile.amazon.com Thrive in Financial, and Benevity, amongst others. Marcy loves hearing from listeners. Please feel free to reach out to her via email at marcy at andysmom.com. Also, be sure to sign up for the email list to receive weekly updates as well as pictures of all of Marcy's guests and their children. Together, let's work to inspire hope one day at a time.